It does. I think everybody's getting kind of, you know, I don't know if you heard the story about the old guy. He was not much of a father, and his son had ended up in jail. And he writes his son in jail, he says, Dear son, my heart is broken. It's that time of the year when you and I used to plant the tomatoes together. But you're in jail, and I'm an old man, and I can't do it by myself. I'm so sad. Love, Dad. Well, a couple days later, he gets a letter back from his son in jail. Dear Dad, don't dig up the garden. That's where I buried all the bodies. Well, sure enough, the FBI gets the letter. And they swarm the house, and they dig everything up. Can't find a thing. Knock on the old man's door, apologize, and leave. A couple days later, Dad gets another letter from his son in jail. Dear Dad, sorry I couldn't be there to help. It, I hope you enjoyed the garden. It was the best I could do in a hurry. Well, <laughs> I'm going to do the best I can in a, in a hurry here to talk a little bit about how to invest. And again, I realize that this is a more treacherous session than any of the others in the sense that I have people in this audience that are all over the board on this. There are some of you in here that don't know the very most fundamental issues of investing. There are others of you in here who know probably more than I do about investing. And so I've got to sort of come to a middle ground. So if I miss you, please forgive me. It's not that I'm doing it on purpose. Um, I would start out by simply saying this. Folks, if we are going to invest correctly, we have got to learn to follow the lead of successful people. And this is not what most people do when it comes to their investing. Most people get their investment advice from people who don't have money. That is dumb. Now, I'm just going to tell you some things here. And if I sound cynical, there's a reason for it. It's because I'm cynical, okay? I'm just going to tell you, people, for the most part, get their investment advice from the wrong people. People who say buy low and sell high, who forget to tell them what happens if that doesn't work. And I'm telling you, most of the advice we get out from out in, in the public arena is bad advice. You know, the main, the main message that we're getting constantly from TV, from the advertising and everything else, is that there are some companies over here who have some employees that are extremely smart, and they know how to take your money and invest it in low price stocks and how to sell it when they get high, and they're going to make you a lot of money. And I'm telling you, that is absolutely not true. As a matter of fact, the whole concept of investing in America is based on a theory, for many people anyways, that is a flawed theory. Now for those of you in this group who are very interested in investing, I'm going to tell you something that you might want to write down here. The approach that I tend to lean towards, and I don't even agree with all the tenets of this, but I tend to lean towards what is known as modern portfolio theory. Modern portfolio theory. MPT was founded at the University of Chicago back in 1952. To date, they've won one Nobel Prize in this field. Modern Portfolio Theory, if you want to read a good book on it, go to Amazon and buy the book. It's called A Random Walk Down Wall Street. Part of what Modern Portfolio Theory says is this. It says, listen, nobody is smart enough to consistently, over long periods of time, outguess the markets. Nobody can do it. And, and, if, and for those few who maybe trip across it and do, you don't know in advance which ones they're going to be. And sure enough, that's true. You take any group of 100 high-powered money managers and you track them over 20 years, they're all telling you they can outperform the market. However, on average, less than 10%, matter of fact, it's closer to about 5% of them, actually do so. And the trouble is, you don't know which 5 or 10% that's going to be 20 years earlier. 
So there's got to be a better way to do this. Now what a lot of people do, again, we sit around and we do what everybody else does. We watch TV. I was in the television business for 25 years. Folks, I know TV. Let me just tell you something. The business channels are not on the air to give us business information. The news channels aren't there to give you news. The sports isn't there to give you sports. And entertainment is not there to give us entertainment. That's why Christians sometimes will sit at home and we'll see some horrendous thing on some TV show. And we think to ourselves, we think, how immoral can somebody be? Hey, to call those people immoral is to miss the point. To call them immoral is to infer that they've got morals. They don't have morals. These people are amoral. They don't care what's on TV. All they're concerned about is the money to be made. That is the business. Now, how does it work? It's based on how many eyeballs are on a screen at any given time. The more eyeballs, the more confiscatory advertising rates they can charge advertisers. That's the way the game gets played. That's why everybody is trying to outdo everybody else. That's why entertainment's getting more and more outrageous. That's why, on, have you noticed the news in the last few years? Every time they go into, the, into a break, they're scared to death you're going to pick up the remote control. So they say something like, you're not going to believe what we're going to show you right after this. Have you noticed that? And then you come back and there's nothing to it, but you keep over the break. Or have you noticed how we don't have weather reports anymore? They're all severe weather warnings, severe weather alerts. Have you noticed that? Or you, you turn on the channel and it says breaking news and we find out that Paris has broken a fingernail or something you know, like that's happened. I mean, this is what's going on all the time. And, and, and it's the same thing on the business channels. You've got some guy from some brokerage house who's gonna come on here and tell you how to buy low and sell high. Never mind the fact that he doesn't care if you make money as long as you're trading, he makes money. And there's some Bob Blow Dry moderator on there who's asking him questions. And if they ever slow down enough just to tell us the truth and say, hey, listen, investing is complicated and it's boring. If they told us the truth, we wouldn't stay with the channel. So they don't tell us the truth. And I'm telling you, we have got to understand the need to follow the lead of people who know what they're doing. Back in 1992, I told you yesterday that I had five heart bypasses. <laughs> I remember after the surgery was over, Bonnie learned that there were some nutritional uh, counseling sessions that were available. So she got with me and she said, Steve, would you like to go down and talk to a nutritionist? Now listen, you all are gonna find this hard to believe. But I have not always been the hard body that you see here tonight. I used to look even worse than this. And I was excited. I said, yeah, I want to go talk to them. Because I wanted this gal to teach me how to live right, how to lose weight, how to exercise, how to live a disciplined life. Well, anyways, we went down to the, the, the center that, that day, and they showed us into the office. And there was this little round table, and Bonnie and me are sitting there waiting for my nutritionist to arrive. And folks, I'm, I'm telling you, if what I saw next had not been pathetic, it would have been hilarious. I looked up just in time to see one of the biggest women squeeze through that door and plop down at my table and introduce herself to me as my nutritionist. That's a true story. And then for the next 45 minutes, this chick commenced to lecture me on how to get into shape. Now, I'll tell you, there are two things true about that meeting. Number one, I will never forget it. Number two, I don't remember a word she said because <laughs> I had turned her off. That woman did not have the moral authority to be doing what she was doing. I mean, I'm sure she was a nice lady, but I mean, this was one heavy-duty beauty. I mean, this was a big gal. <laughs> I'm not going to take, take nutritional advice from somebody like that. Well, folks, we need to understand that the same is true with our money. 
We need to go to people who know what they're talking about. We need to go to people who understand. And, and there are two things, I'll just tell you, there, before I say that, let me say this. There are two ways to deal with the money. One is to learn enough to do it yourself. I'm all for that if you want to do that. The other is to learn enough to ask the right questions to get the right type of advice. Now there are two things that we have to look for in an advisor. We have to look for honesty, we have to look for competence. I do not believe that most of the people out there today have both of these ingredients. Now everybody and his brother is selling financial advice. You got traditional brokers, you got the guys in the insurance companies and the banks, real estate people, everybody's selling financial advice. I do not think that most of these people are dishonest. I think most of them are honest. I think they mostly don't know how incapable they really are. I mean, they've gone off, they've gotten their little Series 7 license, they've gone to the company orientation meetings, and they've been taught how to market, but they've never been taught how to minister. And they really do not understand how short and how incapable they are at what they're attempting to do. And this is why we need to at least know what to expect. You need somebody that is competent and somebody that's honest. It's also nice that they have some good bedside manner, but you've got to have those first two things. So I want to share with you a few of the things that wise investors all seem to understand. And I boiled them down to six of what I call the secrets of the smart investors. And, and again, we could have more or less, but these are six very important things. Number one, wise investors all understand the importance of starting early. You know, we live in a culture today that sort of shrugs its shoulders at any kind of responsibility. That says, you know, today's greatest work-saving device is what? Tomorrow. Let's just put off till tomorrow anything that we don't want to do today. Now, that might work on some things, but folks, I'm telling you emphatically, it doesn't work with investing. Y'all remember King Solomon in the Old Testament? Smartest guy that ever lived? He was probably also the richest guy who ever lived. He could have bought and sold Bill Gates twice in a day's time with a change that fell through the holes in his tunic. I mean, this guy knew the way, his way around money. And here's what Solomon had to say. He said, go to the ant, O sluggard. Observer ways be wise. How long will you lie down, O sluggard? When will you arise from your, uh, from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and boom, your poverty will come like a vagabond. Your need will come like an armed man. Folks, the very, very best time to have begun an investment program was yesterday. Now, if you didn't start one yesterday, the next best time will be tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock. I'll tell you what, take your books if you want to, and <clears throat> look at that grid that's coming up where we illustrate four hypothetical couples. Now, these four couples all want to retire with a million dollars, but they're going to go about it in, a different, in different ways. Now, this is all based on some assumptions that may or may not hold. They're fairly reasonable assumptions, but the thing that I'm trying to do here is just give you a comparative analysis. The first couple, the one on the far left, these are my heroes. This is Jack and Judy Jumpstart. Now, Jack and Judy got married when they were 20, but they looked at each other and they said, Sweetie Pea, we don't need to be going on those expensive resort vacation trips. We don't need to take the cruises, and we sure as the world don't need the little his and her beamers, okay? We want to retire with a million dollars. So what do we need to do? Well, over the next eight years, Jack and Judy, every single year, set aside $2,000. And at age 28, they stopped setting aside money. Now, I wish they hadn't done that, but they do. They set aside $16,000. If you'll look down to the bottom of the page, when retirement hits, Jack and Judy should have just a little over a million dollars sitting in their account. 
Well, Jack and Judy have a couple of friends named Larry and Lisa Loafer. Larry and Lisa blew through their 20s. They went on the vacations, they bought the cars, they had a good old time. Here they are at age 30, cranked up over the backyard fence looking next door at Jack and Judy. Jack and Judy are next door in the hammock together, kissing and necking and nuzzling on each other because they don't have anything to worry about. And Larry and Lisa say, what do we need to do to have a million dollars? We've only waited 10 more years. Well, they're going to have to do some pretty radically different things. For the next 37 years, Larry and Lisa are going to have to set aside $2,800 per year, more than $100,000 to get the same million that Jack and Judy got with their $16,000. Well, our next couple, this is poor old Ollie and Odette. Oh, no, they're 40. They don't have two nickels to rub together. What do they need to do to have a million dollars at retirement? Well, for the next 27 years, every year, Ollie and Odette are going to have to set aside $7,600, over $200,000 to get the same million that Jack and Judy got with $16,000. Well, our last poor couple, this is Herb and Helen Hurry Up. Herb and Helen are 50. What do they need to do? Well, over the next 17 years, Herb and Helen are going to have to set aside $23,000 every single year, almost $400,000 to get the same million dollars that Jack and Judy got with their 16,000. Brothers and sisters, I hope my point here is clear. There are not just additional benefits to starting early, there are geometrical benefits. Now listen, I know that if you're already in your 60s or your 70s or your 80s, it's too late to start early. I'll admit that, okay? But here's, here's the good news. And this, by the way, has spiritual implications. It is never too late. It is never too late to begin doing the right thing. There are people who start investment programs in their 70s and they see benefits. But think about the folks that are in your wake, the children, the grandchildren, the kids who are at church. We need to get in their face. We need to start talking to them about it. We need to grab those kids and say, listen, kid, I know you're buying that car and you want to spend, what is it, $2,000 on that stereo set? Hey, I'm sure it sounds great, but what about this? What if you spent $500 and bought a Philco and put the other $1,500 away? Here's what it would do for you. Now, they may not listen, but at least you are helping them think about it. Very important thing to do. The second great secret of the wise investors is that they all understand the concept of compounding. I call compounding the great investment steroid. I love compounding. Y'all remember Albert Einstein? Fuzzy-haired guy. Pretty good with the numbers. When old Al first learned about compounding, it blew his fuzzy little brain. He could not believe how well this worked. He called compounding the eighth wonder of the world. Let me, let me tell you how my father taught me about compounding. Back when I was, I don't know, 10 or 12 years old, Dad looked across the dinner table at me one night and he said, Son, pretend that I've got a job that I need you to do. And it's going to take you one month. Now, I'll be happy to pay you in either of two ways that you prefer. If you wish, I will pay you one thousand dollars every single day or if you'd rather I'll give you one penny on the first day then I'll give you two pennies and four pennies like that he said which way would you prefer to be paid well honestly I don't remember what I told him but you know being the 12 year old rocket scientist that I was I probably took him up on that $31,000 deal everybody knows that would have been the mistake of a lifetime anybody in here know what one penny doubled just 31 times is worth, anybody? Yeah, over a million dollars. It's actually about $10,700,000.
Now, if I've got your attention, that's what they call compounding. It doesn't work that well in the real world, but it works real well. See, what compounding does is this. It allows an investment to grow faster by generating earnings on top of reinvested earnings. Like you take the interest and throw it back in, or the dividends, or the capital gains. It grows faster. Let me show you how it works. Pretend that you've got $10,000 that you want to invest, and you're going to invest it for 35 years and somebody's going to give you a return of 10% per year, an annual 10% rate of return, but they are not going to compound this. Question is, what's that money going to be worth in 35 years? That's pretty easy. What's 10% of 10,000? $1,000. So each year for 35 years, we get $1,000, 35,000. Then we throw the original $10,000 back into the pile, and we have a pretty tidy $45,000, right? Well, what would you think would happen if we took that same $10,000 for the exact same 35 years at exactly the same 10% rate of return. But let's pretend that all along the way, about every month, we just took the interest and threw it back into the pile. You think it would be worth a little bit more than $45,000 at the end of 35 years? Yeah, a little bit more. It'd be worth over 300,000. Folks, this is why it is so important for us to ask questions. You go down to the bank and you open up a CD, you ask them, does this thing compound? And what's the correct answer? Yeah. Next question is how often? Once a year? Yuck. Some investments are compound monthly, some weekly, some daily. The more often an investment compounds, the better it will grow in most cases. That's why if you open up a mutual fund account and it's not in a tax-protected account like an IRA or a 401k, they will probably ask you, do you want us to send you the dividends and the capital gains at the end of the year? And what's the correct answer? No, if you don't need them, don't do it. Just leave it in there, let it grow. And folks, listen, let me talk to you about the nasty underbelly of compounding. I call this reverse compounding. Now, if you're an economist, you're going to argue with me, and, and I know technically it's different, but it works the same way. Reverse compounding is what is beating most Americans up. That's why when somebody comes up to me and they say, Steve, my grandfather just passed away and left me $15,000, what should I do? I know what he wants me to do. He wants me to give him the name of a great mutual fund. But I like to just kind of go right back to that wolf barrier that we talked about last night. Have you got your crisis cash? Cool. Have you got your Murphy fund? Great. Have you, have, have you got that insurance in line? Good. Now the next thing we're going to do is we're going to murder that low or that high interest rate short-term debt. Have you got any credit cards? Have you got any school bills? Have you got any car loans? Okay, take your $15,000 and pay those things down. Because the trouble is this. When we have debt, short-term high interest rate debt, we are effectively digging a hole to China so fast that we can never get to ground level and be begin to build our castle. And that's why two families, both of them making $50,000 a year, one of them has money in the bank and the other one feels like they're hopelessly in debt. It's because of reverse compounding versus true compounding. This is why we need to learn about this. That's the cool thing, the minute, and this is what I was talking about earlier, the minute we get out of debt, we continue to apply the same strategies and skills and disciplines, and we feel like we're on a catapult. Things grow and change so fast. And that's why if you're discouraged tonight, use that discouragement energy to get you out of debt. And then keep doing those things for six months or a year or two years, and it'll stun you what will happen. Let me share the third secret of the wise investors. They all understand dollar cost averaging. This is a favorite investment technique of conservative people. Folks, the only, <laughs> the only thing about me that's not conservative are my shirts, okay? I'm a little bit right of Attila the Hun. Well, I, went, I went left when I said that. I'm a little bit right of Attila the Hun on about everything else. 
And I like dollar cost averaging because it is a very conservative approach to investing. You see, what most people do is exactly the wrong thing. And this is what I was talking about earlier. Most people sort of sit on the sidelines and they watch the markets go up, 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 up. And the people on TV are saying, you're a dummy for not being in on this. So they watch it go way up and then they get excited and they jump in with both feet. And then what always happens? The markets go down for a while, they get spooked and they jump out and they say, see, you can't make money in the market. Well, duh, you buy high, you sell low, you can't make money. So dollar cost averaging does a cool thing. It takes the emotion out of investing. For instance, if you've got some money that you want to invest and you're going to dollar cost average, you determine to put a certain number of dollars away in a good investment on regular intervals, maybe every month, every three quarters, or every three months, whatever. If you've already got a 401k or an IRA at work or wherever, and you're putting money away right now on a regular basis, you're already dollar cost averaging. Let's just pretend that you're doing that. You're putting $200 away every month in a good investment. And let's pretend the first month the markets are high and the shares in the mutual fund are selling, say, for, for $50 a share. How many shares does your $200 buy this month? Help? Four shares, yeah. Next month, though, the markets have gone way down, and those same shares are selling for $20. Nobody gets spooked. Nobody says, oh, I'm going to get out of this. No, we know it's a good investment. We put in our $200. How many shares does our $200 buy this month at $20 a share? Ten. You see, it's a little bit like going down here to Kroger and buying bargains. You're getting more shares for the same number of dollars. It's like, you know, after we get through here, you go down to Kroger and you want to buy Del Monte green beans in a can and they're usually a dollar a can, but tonight you can get two cans for a dollar. That's a bargain. You're not going to be spooked by that. Now, by the way, what I'm doing right now is what stockbrokers like for me to do. I'm making the case for buying stocks in down markets. Let me give you a little broader perspective before we leave this. Let's forget the, the canned goods. Let's leave that part of the store. And let's walk over here to where the steaks are, okay, the meat counter. And here we have T-bone steaks, okay? Usually these T-bone steaks are $7 a pound. But tonight, they're on sale for $2 a pound. Now, that could be a bargain, right? But if those things are turning green, <laughs> that's no bargain, is it? Listen, I'm not saying that with dollar cost averaging, every time we see something go down, we just jump in and buy it. No, that's not what I'm saying at all. Because there are times when companies get into trouble because of fraud and all kinds of things. I am saying that with dollar cost averaging, we determine a good solid investment and we stay steady to it. People who do this over long periods of time generally way outpace the people who are trying to time the market, trying to gamble with their investments. And think about it, folks, there is such a thing as gambling with investments that I would submit to you may not even be a Christian way to do it. Um, fourth secret of the really smart investors is the concept of asset allocation or a first cousin to it is diversification. It has to do with what we were talking about earlier. It's extremely dangerous to put too many of our investment nest eggs in one basket. Listen, something that is frightening is when somebody comes up and they say, you know, my, my parents passed away, they left me $100,000 worth of Walmart stock, I love my parents, and I'm just gonna keep that, that's gonna be my retirement account. Folks, that scares me to death. Is it because Walmart's a bad company? No. Walmart's a good company, but what do you reckon would happen tomorrow morning to Walmart stock if the IKEA company in, in, in Europe announced that they were going to put a superstore within 50 yards of every Walmart and cut prices by 40%? Do you think Walmart stock could take a hit? You see, it's extremely dangerous anytime we have too many of our investments in one nest egg. 
and, or in, in one basket, I should say. The, <clears throat> the experts tell us this. And again, I'm not talking about these guys on TV. I'm talking about the true academics. The studies keep coming back on this. The fact is, the returns on long-term investing are not determined by what we're told, and that is by being smart enough to buy low and sell high. Huh? The real long-term returns, over 90% of them, are determined by how we divvy up or how we allocate our money. For instance, if you've got some money to invest, and this is not a recommendation, it's just an example, you might put some of it in a mutual fund that buys large American companies, Pfizer, Boeing, Walmart. You might put some into a mutual fund that buys small American companies that are worth $5 billion or less. You might put some into a mutual fund that buys value-oriented companies. These are companies whose stock prices have been depressed. Maybe some into some foreign mutual funds. Maybe some into some bond funds. Maybe some into some cash. Now that does not guarantee the greatest rate of return, let me just tell you. But what it tends to do is it tends to you know, level out this roller coaster ride that nobody likes. You see, different investments respond differently. When one is down, usually others will be up or not down as much. And it tends to change the roller coaster into something that's a bit smoother. And the really cool thing is, with it done correctly, asset allocation over long periods of time tends to actually give us better returns in addition to smoothing things out. Uh, and again, I wish I were smart enough to come in here for anybody that wanted me to and tell people how to allocate your money. I am not smart enough to do that. I hire somebody to help me with that. But I will tell you this, these things up here in white, some of these will probably play into it, along with other things. Listen, let me, let me give you three numbers. Over the last, and, and really the reason I'm doing that is because arguably this top one, our age, may have as much to do with how we allocate our money as anything else, at least for some of us. But let me explain this by sharing four numbers with you, okay? Over the last hundred years, stocks have had an average annual return of approximately 11%. Bonds have had an average annual return of about 5.5%. Cash, things like CDs, money markets, have had an average annual return of about 4%. So you hear this and you say, well, yippee skippy, if I can get 11% of my money in stocks, that's where I want to put it. Well, that might not be the best place to put all your money because the truth is stocks may have averaged 11% over the last 100 years, but nobody knows what the future holds. And also remember that word averaged, that is the most important word in the sentence. I'm not aware of any one year when stocks have been dead on to the average. One year they're up 18%, they're down nine, they're up 27, they're down 14, they're all over the board. And if you happen to be at an age in life, age in life, such as retirement, and you have all of your money in stocks, but you're at an age in life where you need to start living on it, and it happens to be a time when the markets are going down, you could be in a world of hurt. You could be pulling money out 60 or 80 cents on the dollar. So it is probably good advice, the old teaching, that as we get closer to retirement, we average more of our money into more tranquil investments, the bonds, the cash, stuff like that. Now they used to tell people by retirement to have all of their money in bonds and cash. And then finally, a few years ago, somebody woke up and said, well, duh, people are not dying at age 68 anymore. A lot of people are living 30 years into retirement. So it may make good sense even in retirement. Granted, we want to average more money over here to bonds and cash, but even in retirement, to leave some money in stocks. That way, during retirement, when the markets are up, we live off of this. When these go down, we leave them alone to recover, and we live off of this. Now again, some people hear all that and they say, Steve, if stocks are that up and down and risky, I don't want any risk with my investments. You said I could get 4% rate of return on CDs, that's good enough for me. I don't want any risk. Well, 
Let's play that game for just a minute. Is that really a risk-free investment? Pretend that you've got $100,000. Tomorrow morning, you go down and knock on the bank's door. Say, hey, I need to open up a CD. They say, come on in here, sit down, we'll do it. So they write you up a contract for one year, they take your $100,000 check, and they give you a CD contract for, say, 4%. That's about what they're paying right now. By the way, you can get better money than that if you, if you shop. Everybody knows that nothing is set in stone. I had to renew a CD a week or two ago, and I think we ended up getting almost 5.4%. But, but, you know, if you, if you just work at it, you can usually get better rates. But anyways, pretend that they're going to give you a 4% rate of return. So you come back one year later, knock on the door. They say, hey, what do you want? You say, well, I like my money. It's been a year. They say, great, come on in here. So they write you a check for $104,000. You have made a guaranteed safe 4% return, right? Right? Well, I don't know. Sooner or later, either before it goes in or when it comes out, you're probably going to have to pay some taxes. Boom, there goes about 1,000. We're now down to a 3% rate of return. Now, you remember a minute ago I said I wanted to give you four numbers. Stocks have returned 11%, bonds 5.5%, cash 4 The number that I didn't give you is the rate that inflation has run at for the last 100 years. Inflation has averaged about 3.1%. So do you see what's happened here? We have a 3% after-tax return in a 3.1% inflationary environment. This year, we have effectively lost money because of the risk of inflation. I write about five or six different types of risk in the book, but the point is simply this. There is no such thing as investing without risk. Risk is not bad. Part of good asset allocation is understanding the different types of risk and balancing them. Some people think, well, nuts, Steve, if investing is that risky, I'm just going to bury it in the backyard. Huh. You talk about high-risk investing, that's it. The bugs will eat it, inflation will destroy it, or you'll get Alzheimer's and forget where you put it. <laughs> Something bad is going to happen to that money. Don't be afraid of risk, just learn how to balance it. Number five, successful investors are people who keep their eye on the investment ball. You know, smart investors are people who have sort of a sixth sense. They pay attention to the money. Doesn't mean they have to have a complicated plan. Some of the best investors I know are people that could rip off a half a sheet of paper, grab a crayon, and tell a 10-year-old where the money is. But please hear me on this, and I, and I don't mean to be disrespectful, but please listen. If you have a retirement program right now, and you honestly don't know how it's been performing over the last year or two, you don't know what funds you're in, you're not sure how they're balanced with each other, respectfully, I'm telling you, you're asleep at the switch. This is the money that's going to pull you through the second part of your life. Nobody else out there is going to care about it as much as you should. You need to be watching the money. Wise investors, one of the little tricks they like is this thing called the rule of 72. There's not anything too special about this, but it's kind of a cute trick. It's a quick way to figure out how fast your money's going to grow. For instance, if you put $1,000 into a CD at the bank, you want to know, well, how long is it going to take to grow, say, to 2000 What you do is you apply the rule of 72. You take the rate of interest that you're being paid, divide that into 72. For instance, if you're being paid 6%, divide 6 into 72, your money will double about every 12 years. If you're being paid 4%, divide 4 into 72, your money should double about every 18 years. And again, that's a cute trick, but the broad point is wise people watch the money. The sixth secret of the smart investors is that wise investors are wary of speculative investments and market frenzies. Folks, there is nothing new under the sun. You remember the tulip bulb mania that we all read about in our history books that started in the 1600s? This thing started in Holland, and by the time it had spread across the European continent, there were people who were literally selling their homes in exchange for single tulip bulbs. And you think, what a bunch of idiots, and they were. 
That thing imploded and people all over the continent lost everything. You think, well, I'm sure glad people aren't that stupid today. Folks, I'm the guy who single-handedly <laughs> turned the gold rush of the early 1980s around. I'm the idiot who sat there and watched gold go from five to six to $700 an ounce. And the day that gold hit 800, I bought. And to this day, I've still got one gold corona in my hall of shame at home to remind me of what an idiot I can be. That thing's been worth about $250 or $300 most of the time since. Right now it's worth a little bit more. But if I had invested that money correctly, it'd probably be worth over $10,000 by now. You know, there are idiots born every minute, but the truth is riverboat gamblers don't make good long-term investors. You know, there are always going to be people out here trying to out guess everybody else and day trade and all this carrying on, but sooner or later it always happens. The bottom falls out and what comes after that is one big, bad, bone-crushing experience. So we need to ask the musical question, what's the average boy or girl supposed to do? Um, I need some help. David, I hate to bother you about this, but could you get me a little bowl or a little collection basket or something? I, I failed to bring it in. I need it for something I'm going to do in a minute, if you don't mind. This is when I get to talk to you about something that I really love to discuss. This is when I get to talk to you a little bit about mutual funds. Now listen to this because this is important. I am not recommending mutual funds to anybody in this room. They could be good for you. They may not be good for you. My goal here is simply this. I want to add to the bank of information that you've already got about mutual funds. I just want to share some thoughts with you about these because a lot of people don't understand much about them. Mutual funds have been around in this country since at least the 1920s. We have over 15,000 different funds available today. About 100 million Americans own mutual funds. That's a little bit more than half of us. We've got over $10 trillion invested in these things nationwide. They are a big deal. Different funds have different things about them. Funds vary in all kinds of ways. They've got different purposes and personalities. They invest in different types of assets. Most mutual funds do invest either in stocks or bonds or cash. But you've got some oddball funds out there that will invest in art, real estate, precious metals, all kinds of things. Thank you, brother. I just need one. Thank you. Uh, the cost, the fees, to say nothing to the returns on mutual funds, vary broadly. Now, let me just share with you briefly what I call Steve's mutual fund analogy. When I'm teaching about mutual funds, I like to tell folks that there are at least two things we've got to get under our belt if we're going to deal with these. Number one, we need to understand the mutual fund language. And to do that, I like to analogize mutual funds to something I love. I love sushi. Does anybody else in here like sushi? Few of us? Yeah. We get some bad stuff, we're going to get to go to heaven before anybody else. <laughs> I love sushi. Now you've got to understand, I cannot eat red meat. I can't eat anything fried because of my, my health problems. But I love sushi. However, whenever it was, 15 years or so ago, when I first started eating sushi, I learned something real quick. I learned that I had better know the sushi language. Because, you know, when you get a plate of sushi, you know, there are usually a couple of condiments on it. You know, there's that pink slice stuff. It's pickled ginger. It's a sweet tasting palate cleanser. It tastes real good. But right next to it is that green pasty blob of stuff, of, of stuff called what? Wasabi. <laughs> Wasabi is made from a high octane oriental radish. This is absolutely the hottest stuff on the planet. You eat that the wrong way, it'll throw you into last Tuesday. So you have got to know the sushi language. It's the same with mutual funds. I want to share with you a little bit about the mutual fund language in a moment. Something else I like to tell people is this. If we're going to deal with mutual funds, we have to understand the differences between them. And to do that, I analogize them to something else I love. I love motorcycles. Who in here has a motorcycle? Who's got a bike? Woo! What kind do you, what kind do you have? 
Kawasaki? I'm sorry. <laughs> what, what else have we got back here? What, did I see another hand? What do you got? Oh, my. Japanese guys around here, huh? Who else got a bike in here? Anybody got anything different than a Kawasaki? You got a Honda? Okay. Still Japanese. What, what, who, who's hand? Is that a guy or a girl over there? What, what, a guy, what, do you, what have you got? <laughs> Man, everybody in here is driving Japanese. What have you got? <laughs> That's a motorcycle. <laughs> what kind of Harley do you have? Oh, dear. <laughs> what we've got here is a liar. <laughs> well, I do have a Harley. Well, you help me out. Thank you. I do have a Harley. Have you, what have you got? Yeah. I've got a Road King. It's a, it's a black-on-black, fuel-injected. It's an Evo engine, but it's, it's, it's really a bad motorcycle. I, I love motorcycles. I always have loved motorcycles. And, and for those of us in the room who like motorcycles, we can quickly tell the difference, right? I mean, we could glance at our bikes, bikes, or we could kick them on and turn our backs and listen to them and tell them apart, right? But the rest of you in here, most of you don't care much about motorcycles. Matter of fact, to you all, they probably all look pretty much alike, right? Two wheels with a nut on top, right? Right? <laughs> but if you like them, you can tell the difference. It's the same thing with mutual funds. We have got, if we're going to deal with them, to understand some of the differences. And I want to share that. Let me give you a real quick mutual fund definition. A mutual fund is an investment that pools your money with the money of a lot of other folks called shareholders. And then it invests that money in usually stocks or bonds or cash in the hope of achieving a specified goal. And that goal is to make some more money in most cases. Each investor or shareholder who owns shares participates in the fund's gains or losses. Now, I'll tell you what I thought we'd do here. This is why I asked David to go get this. I thought we would demystify mutual funds a little bit here. I want to show you how conceptually simple mutual funds are. I thought we would just start our own mutual fund right here, right now. I need some money. Uncross your arms. Don't be a cheap church. I'm serious. I need a nickel or a dime. Come on, come on. Crack it out. You'll get it back. Come on. Ooh, good night. There, ooh, I got Foley money. What are you doing? Doing all right there. Here we go. Got some, oh, there's some change inbound. There we go. There we go. Anybody got another penny? Or, okay, throw that in. Okay, that's good enough. Okay, now, folks, let me show you what we've just done. What we've just done here. We have just now started a mutual fund. <laughs> See how easy that was? Well, what makes this thing a mutual fund? Well, it's a fund that we collected how? Mutually. That's all there is to a mutual fund. Now, if this had been a legitimate fund, first off, my investors would not have been so cheap. I would have millions of dollars here, or billions of dollars, but I would have also had to give each one of my investors a prospectus that would have explained what we're going to invest in. Let's pretend that this is going to invest in large American companies, uh, United Airlines, um, uh, GM, companies like that. And it would have had to tell you how it's performed in the past, what the expenses are, and stuff like that. Now, my job as your mutual fund manager is to take it over here to the boys and girls in our investment department and give it to them and let them invest this money in the best large companies they can find. Now the goal, folks, is real, real simple. It's to try to grow the value of this money. But please hear this, there's no guarantee. This is not an FDIC insured investment. It can go up, it can go down, it can go sideways. These things can go all the way around town. But good mutual funds over long periods of time tend to go up. That's all there is conceptually to a mutual fund. Your money will be right up here on the front row if you're, if you're quick. <laughs> okay. 
<laughs> All right, let me share with you the most popular types of funds based on what is invested in them. By far the most popular type of mutual fund are the stock funds. There are all kinds of stock mutual funds, big ones, little ones, foreigns, domestics, all kinds. We have bond funds. A bond fund invests in bonds. There are foreign bond funds, corporate bond funds, government bond funds. We also have money market funds. Now these are a little bit different from everything else. A money market fund is almost like a savings account. It grows very, very slowly. But a money market fund should never lose principal. That means it should never go below what you put into it. Is it guaranteed not to? No, there's no FDIC insurance on it. But if it's ever happened, I don't know when it has. These things are pretty stable. The fourth type of mutual fund, and we're not going to talk about these, is what I call the hybrid funds. These are the nutty things that most people don't even need to know about that invest in all kinds of crazy things. Um, the benefits of mutual funds, in my judgment, are pretty broad, but the one we'll zero in on is just that top one. I would tell you that the neatest thing about mutual funds, for most of us, is the diversification that they allow middle-income class people to enjoy. You see, before we had mutual funds, you had to have a lot of money to buy enough shares of enough different companies to get broad diversification. But with mutual funds, it's all changed. Now, I'm just going to tell you something that is my opinion here. You don't have to agree with this. But in my judgment, even if you've got a million dollars right now to invest, or two million dollars, in my personal opinion, you still don't have enough money to be going out here buying individual shares of individual companies because you can't buy enough shares each of enough different companies to get that broad market diversification that at least I want. But with only a few, you know, three or four thousand dollars in the right mutual funds, you can suddenly be diversified out over thousands of companies. That to me is the great benefit of mutual funds. The two types of mutual funds out there based on how we pay for them are loaded mutual funds and no load funds. A loaded mutual fund is nothing more than a mutual fund that has a sales charge, a commission. They call it a load. How much are loads? Well, they vary. I've seen them as low as 2%. I've seen them up over 8%. And a good average is probably around 5%. That means that if you put $1,000 into a 5% loaded fund, only $950 of it is going to go to work for you. The other $50 goes to the boy or girl that, paid, that, that sold it to you to pay them a commission. These are usually sold by middlemen, either by brokers or somebody at the bank or something like that. The other type of mutual fund is the no-load fund. No loads don't have loads. That means if you put $1,000 into it, all $1,000 of it goes to work for you. There are some famous companies out there that specialize in selling directly to the public no-load funds. Most of Fidelity's funds are no-loads. T. Rowe Price sells no-loads. Probably the most famous no-load company is Vanguard. You put your money in there and you don't have the low. Now, obviously, the question is going to get asked, which one of these is best? And I will tell you, I have got some very strong opinions on this that I will not share. But I'll tell you that this debate has gone on since at least the 1970s. And it probably does have as much to do with you as anything else. If you are competent, you've studied, you know how to invest, and you're interested in doing it, there's no reason in the world not to buy your own no-load funds and just do it and save the money. But if you need help, don't go on the cheap here. Get somebody who's competent and who's honest to help you. Some people have no problem buying loaded funds from a broker and paying them a commission. A lot of other people say, no way, Jose. I'm not about to give this, this guy or girl a commission and give them an incentive to sell me something that maybe I don't need. I want to pay somebody a fee or, or pay them a flat rate or let them take a little sliver of my account out each year. A fee-based advisor suits a lot of people. And, and again, where do you find one? They're everywhere. Where do you find a good one? They're hard to find. One thing you might look for 
is the CFP, the Certified Financial Planner designation after their name. That doesn't guarantee that they're good, but that does, they, they have to hit some standards to do that. But there are some very good ones out there that are not CFPs. So it's important to, to get to know the person, to get to know their clients, and to really learn what you're doing. You need, we can't put this on autopilot. We need to know what's going on, or we're going to be asking for troubles. Um, let me go back to that last one. Mutual funds do have expenses. These things are not free. I've already told you that some funds have loads. All funds have management fees. What is a management fee? That's the money that they're going to siphon out of your account every year to pay the boys and girls that answer the phones and the kids that send you those cool brochures, okay? How much is the management fee? That varies too. I've seen management fees less than one-half percent. I've seen them up over three percent. The national average right now for a diversified American stock mutual fund is probably about one and a half percent. But by far the most important thing on this page is, are those last two lines. Watch those expenses. Don't let the expenses get out of control because if you do, it's going to really hurt the returns. Don't let some guy cock back in his chair and say, hey, what's the big deal? It's only another half a percent. Hey, look, here's the plan, Stan. If it's no big deal to him, we're going to let him pay it for us, okay? <laughs> because a half a percent to me can cost me a lot of money. It could cost tens of thousands of dollars over the years. We need to watch expenses. Pay very close attention to these. Uh, listen, I'm not going to talk to you about different types of funds tonight with, the, with one exception. I do want to say something about index mutual funds. How many of you in here are familiar with index mutual funds? Okay, good. Back in the 1970s, some real smart people started to study the mutual fund industry. And they found a curious thing. They found what I told you at the beginning of the session was exactly right. Virtually none of these high-priced money managers over long periods of time did what they promised. Very few of them outperformed the market. So somebody said, why not? And the answer was because they made dumb guesses and then they charged you either way. So somebody else said, well, why don't we develop some simple mutual funds? Someone else said, well, how are you going to do that? And they said, well, you know, we've got 10 or 20 different market indexes out here that keep up with different groups of stocks. You've heard about some of them, like the S&P 500. That's America's 500 biggest companies. Today, we have all kinds of index funds tied to these different indexes. And when you put money into an index fund, suppose you put $1,000 into an S&P 500 index fund. There's no manager there trying to buy stocks and sell them and trying to outguess the market. No, your $1,000 goes in and it is immediately divided up over all 500 of those companies. And the really cool thing about index funds, over long periods of time, many, if not most, have outperformed many, if not most, of the managed funds. So I encourage people to get familiar with these. I write about them some in the book, but a better place to get information is to go to vanguard.com. Now remember, Vanguard is also the biggest seller of, of, of index funds in the world. They have a bias, but their websites are quite good. Listen, we're going to wrap this up, but I want to just say two or three things as we do. Number one, watch out about chasing performance. You know, all mutual fund ads have to have that little thing on the bottom that says, past performance doesn't guarantee future results. They don't want you to see that. They want you to see that, you know, 18% rate of return headline at the top. But folks, buying a mutual fund based exclusively on how it's performed, especially in the recent past, is a little bit like driving your car watching the rearview mirror. It's going to tell you something about the terrain around, but it ain't going to tell you a thing about that tree dead ahead that you're about to plow into. So watch out for that. Number two, look out for the big brag funds. There are some funds out there that you see advertised every now and then. They'll come along and they'll say, you know, we've had a 96,000% rate of return since lunch or something. Never, I'm exaggerating. But you know, I mean, you'll sometimes see one that says, you know, we've had 85% rate of return this year. And you think, man, I've got to get in on this. Well, that may have happened over the last few months. 
but the odds are high that that mutual fund manager has been taking some pretty risky investment approaches. They've been working so far, but those things could go south on him in a New York minute and everybody could be hurting. Think about it, suppose you put $10,000 into one of those big high-flying funds, and let's pretend the first year it goes straight up 100%, and it's at $20,000, and everybody's feeling pretty good, but then the next year it loses 60%. And you're thinking, well, I don't like that, but shoot, I'm still up 40%, that's not bad. Are you? Let's see, we put in 10,000, it goes up 100% to 20,000, then we lose 60%. By my count, that brings us down here to about $8,000. Watch out, those high-flying funds hurt when they go downhill. And lastly, one more time, watch expenses because they can draw down returns. Listen, I've got two last things I wanna share, but these for me are the most important things of this entire seminar. I believe with all my heart that Satan is extremely interested in our money and he has a plan for it, and it's centered around greed. Brothers and sisters, greed is a killer. It kills temporally, and it will kill people eternally. You know, we say here in the South that the, the pigs get fat and the hogs get slaughtered. Greedy people get into a lot of trouble. You know, when you think about it, really, Satan doesn't have anything to work with, does he? I mean, listen, these are not trick questions. Real fast, who made this world? God. And who made the stuff in the world? God. And does God make good stuff or bad stuff? Good stuff. Okay, cool. So if God made the world, and if God made all the stuff in the world, and if all the stuff God made is good, somewhere, sometimes, somebody ought to ask, what's the devil got left to work with? See, really, all the devil can do is take the good stuff that God has made and twist it, pervert it, just a touch, and then try to sell it back to us. Sex, sex is a party in marriage. You take it outside of marriage, it's fornication, it's damnable, it will send people's souls to hell. Ambition is a fabulous thing if it inspires us to be at our very best. But if we use it as an excuse to crawl over other people to get what we want, that's not good. Folks, we have spent about six hours together, and thank you for your time, talking about money, about how to share the money God's given us, how to grow it, how to protect it, how to deal with it. I think this is a good thing to do. It has to do with stewardship. But if we let this interest in our money morph just a little bit, it can turn to greed and we can be in a lot of trouble. The Bible talks about this over and over. He who loves money will never be satisfied with money. Love of money, it's the root of all sorts of evil. Folks, as Christian people, we ought to have our minds set on the things above, not on the things of this earth, because we have died and our lives should be hidden with Christ in God. Listen, I'm convinced that if we're going to win, it's going to take two things. And I want to be very cautious here how I define the word winning. I am not now talking about money. I guess maybe money's way down the list somewhere. But when I'm talking about winning for the last couple of minutes here this evening, please understand, I'm talking about in the things that count. When all is said and done, all that's going to count is one thing. What were our relationships like? The only thing that's going to matter is who did you love? And who loved you back? That's it. That's it. Fifty years from tonight, for some of us, a lot of us, almost nobody will know that we were ever here. That's hard, isn't it? Who was our vice president 50 years ago? He became the president. They threw him out of office. Most powerful guy in the world, but we still have to stop and think. Who did I love and who loved me back? It's going to take two things to win. Number one, we have to get some head knowledge.
We've got to get smart. We've got to learn stuff. Again, thank you so much for allowing me to try to share as much information as I've been able to in this period of time. I know I talk fast. I told some people yesterday, I go at about 500 words a minute with Gus up to 700. And it's because I've got so much I want to share and I don't have any more time. But honestly, as I get older, I'm becoming more convicted by the day that head knowledge is probably not more than about 10% of the equation. And listen to me carefully on this, and please hear what I'm saying, because if you misunderstand this, you're going to think very badly on me. You may still think badly on me, but I want you to at least understand what I'm trying to say. I grew up believing that Christianity was primarily a head religion. It was a matter of what I knew. I don't believe that anymore. Yeah, I do understand. We need to learn. The Bible says, study to show yourselves approved unto God. I believe that. But folks, Christianity is not primarily a head religion. It's primarily a relationship. And it's that way with everything. If we're going to have a winning life relationally, where we love our spouse, our children respect us, we're part of a vibrant church that is really Jesus-centered and has a compelling message that these people that are passing here every day that are on average hearing 1,600 advertisements per day, when you think of radio, television, newspaper, billboards, all that stuff, and they're fighting with their spouses, they're worried about their kids, and they're scared of losing their jobs. If we're going to have a compelling message that gets out of this building and into their lives, we have got to go past just the head knowledge. We've got to get the heart. We've got to get the passion. We've got to get the fire in our gut that simply says, I am sick and tired of being sick and tired, and I'm not going to live like this anymore. We are going to do things differently. Listen, there's not a person in this room, if you'll be honest about it, that isn't scared. Every single one of us have things that we're afraid of. The key is to simply to get these butterflies to fly in formation. That's what it boils down to. And if we're going to win, we've got to do that. We've got to get the passion. We've got to get the heart. You know, the sad thing, the sad thing is the outside world seems to know this better than we Christians do. I mean, advertisers, they understand this. Have, have you ever seen McDonald's advertised to your head? I mean, ever once? Have you ever seen a McDonald's TV commercial where some guy shows up on TV in a white lab jacket and he's swinging his arms, he holds up a hamburger and he says, Hi, uh, I'm on TV tonight for McDonald's. <clears throat> We're on here because we want you to buy more of our hamburgers. Uh, they taste good. Never mind the fact that if you eat enough of these, you're going to need a triple bypass. They taste good. Plus, uh, they look pretty good too, don't they? Yeah. And we make about 3.5% profit on every one we sell. Thank you very much. Has anybody ever seen that TV commercial? No. And we're not going to. Because McDonald's knows that's not how you sell hamburgers. Listen, I didn't see McDonald's TV commercial this Christmas, but a typical thing McDonald's might do at Christmas, they might open up a commercial in, in someone's living room. And it's a beautiful living room. There's a fireplace over here that's crackling and glowing. And, and over here on this side, there's this beautifully decorated Christmas tree. And over on this side, here's this big green overstuffed chair. And right next to the big green overstuffed chair is a little round table. And right here in front of the little round table is Billy. Now, Billy's about four, and Billy's putting cookies out. About that time, Big Brother comes dribbling his ball through the living room, looks over his shoulder and says, Billy, what are you doing? And Billy says, oh, oh, I'm putting out cookies for Santa. He's coming tonight, you know. <laughs> Billy, there ain't no such thing as Santa Claus. And with that, Big Brother dribbles his ball out of the living room. He leaves behind this crushed, broken shell of a little brook. No Santa Claus. Next scene, it's the middle of the night. 
Everybody in the house is sound asleep except for Billy. And Billy's upstairs in his bedroom, the cover's up to his chin, holding his blanket and his teddy bear. And he's crying. No, no sound. I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to get up and I'm going to go downstairs and I'm going to check. And if my cookies are gone, that proves there's a Santa. So Billy gets up in the dark room, comes down the hall, down the dark steps, into the living room. The lights are all out, but the fireplace is still glowing. And Billy walks across the floor, and just when he gets up to that big green overstuffed chair, his little feet glue to the floor. He gets his courage up, and he walks around to the other side of the chair, and he looks down at his little round table. And the cookies are both still there. Brother's right, there's no sound. So Billy turns to go back to bed. But just as his foot hits that first step, this big white gloved hand drops down on Billy's little set of shoulders. And Billy looks up, and the voice from the hand says, Billy, I'm sorry I'm late, but I always love your cookies. Merry Christmas. And the signature goes up. Merry Christmas from your friends at McDonald's. Which one of those got to where you live? <laughs> the guy with the burger or Billy? You see, we're people of the heart. And when we get hearts energized, when we get hearts changed, lives change from the core out, cold churches warm up, happy families become happier, bad job situations improve, all kinds of neat things happen. Look, I don't know if I'm going to ever get to see you all again. I hope I do, but if I don't, that's okay. We'll, we'll catch up in heaven. Uh, I'll be the guy in the tacky sh shirt at the sushi bar saying, come over here and try this stuff out. It's not half bad. <laughs> Seriously, it has been so fun being here. If you are a visitor, and I just want to say this, nobody's asked me to say this, but if you happen to be a visitor, and if you're looking for a church home, I want to tell you that you could do a lot worse than Mount Juliet Church of Christ. I go to a lot of churches. I don't say this every place. These people are all sinful people who have their problems just like you do. But these people love Jesus. And this is a church that is truly, truly a family. They've got nine extremely good elders. They've got a great ministry staff and some of the sweetest people that I've run into. If you're looking for a church home, get to know these people. You can come on Sunday mornings, there's no charge. So come and be with us. That's a joke. But anyway, let's bow our heads. We'll talk to the Father. Father God, thank you so much for loving us so much. Lord, we are broken people. We just thank you for your strength. We thank you for your forgiveness. We ask you to help us rest in that. And dear God in heaven, I just pray that you will help us to hold the torch high and keep us homesick for heaven. It's in Jesus we pray and praise you. Amen. God bless you all. Have a good night.